think I was a, a high school student student still, and I think you were still at YVC. And mm-hmm. at the time, um, I had barely learned about what Metro was. And my first Metro meeting was at, I believe it was at Central. Okay. Uh, and I think that's one of the first times I met you there with through Flaco. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we when uh, when we would go to these uh, meetings during the weekends this is for Metro. Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano Aslan. And I remember going, uh, I think there was like four or five of us that drove up from Sunnyside mm-hmm. to Central and like a state meeting. And um, yeah, that was the first time I met you. And I was like, we're close to, to Sunnyside. You know, mm-hmm. I should talk to them, talk to you guys more often, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. you're rather than drive like all over to through Seattle and, and to from Seattle and, and those areas and so yeah um, yeah you know uh that meeting actually changed my trajectory to mm-hmm. I learned a lot and you were very charismatic I believe you were chairing the meeting um, yeah you yeah, know I, what I remember yeah. um you know my cousin my cousin Greg who uh is, you know maybe four four or five year years older than me was a, a student at Yakima Valley Community College. And um, when he transferred to Central Washington University, it's about when I started at Yakima Valley Community College. And I had taken a, a bit of a detour between high school and YVC. In fact, I, I had came, uh, gone to Seattle to a technical program, but was still kind of in the, in the meta scene, mostly because I wanted to stay up on politics. And it was kind of a, a new social circle for me. But when I started back at YVC, um, it kind of gave me the sense that, yeah, you know, YVC Mecha was like the, the hotbed, the political hotbed for Chicano student activism that at least I felt in uh, Washington State and maybe even the Northwest for a, a period of time, largely because of, you know, folks like Maria Fernandez, my cousin Greg and others who had just been really politicized and had gotten Chicano studies there. So when I had gotten to YVC, you know, I, re- I remember feeling just very excited just to be there. And um, what he was doing, at least for his summers, and it was a, it was a summer job, but he was, um, I, I believe, like an upward bound coordinator. And he would stay on campus at YBC working with uh, high school aged youth. And um, I remember when he would talk to me about his work doing that, it reminded us because we would talk about this stuff all the time. We would always talk about how do we politicize younger people? And we would adopt these models that happened in the 60s and 70s where teachers, conferences, there was these events that would tend to congregate younger people and have these conversations. And so when he was doing it, you know, we would talk about it like, yeah, that's what they did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You know, we're, we're, we have the same strategy as our predecessors. And so when I met you, and I believe I, I might have met you and Justin said, you around the same time, but you would talk about, yeah, you know, I got these um, kids from Sunnyside who... You know, I'm, you know, he would always say, I'm giving them some books, I'm passing them and stuff, and they ask these questions, and I can really tell that they're really getting turned on to it. And so I remember when I met, you know, you especially, um, you know, asking all of these questions, it reminded me of like, yeah, that's kind of where I was just a few years ago, just really curious, uh, really motivated. And a lot of what we were talking about and learning about what happened before us, like, resonated. You know, it kind of struck this, uh, this chord. For a lot of us, and um, 
you know, and I, I think, you know, since then, when it, when we got involved with Mecha, it kind of it gave us a structure for a lot of that work. A lot of realignment with historical uh, things that we learned, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you and you actually organized a lot of you organized quite a bit of conferences that we were able to attend. And I symbolic interactions in my head, so many successful stories that we don't even hear about, you know, right. as far as, right. you know. The perseverance they had and mm-hmm. the obstacles they had to go through, you know. But you know, I, I want to ask you about how you grew up, and maybe that's something that uh, I know young adults and youth are, are most likely going through this as well right now. Um, mm-hmm. I know that our genres are different as far as the music we we listen to and the things we used to uh, like back then, you know, like. Right talking about lowriders and and so on but the culture was so it's so different from now you know you yeah uh, you know this gen z and gen y um -hmm. uh they're totally different they're they're not the same research that i've seen recently um it's uh bank of america did a research project on gen z and they Mm -hmm. wanted to find out what is it that they like right now and what are the trends and one of the mm-hmm. trends that they found was that young adults or the Gen Z era, they don't like to uh, physically, they don't like to be there physically with them, but they mm-hmm. will uh, hang out um, with their friends online while they play a video game. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is, you know, Gen Zers, okay. uh, but they will have a drink at home um, as well, aware of, you know, the ills of and, mm-hmm. you know, those are those are they're conscious spenders now. Yeah. Um, so those trends are gonna really change how people do business and development is occurs. Mm-hmm. But is is how did you grow up and what are the barriers? So if you could talk a little bit about that in, in growing up in, in uh, Yakima, I believe mm-hmm. you went to Davis, right? UC Davis? Right, yeah. I mean, uh, not UC Davis, I'm so, I'm sorry. Uh, Davis, Davis High School. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well there was a C in there, it was uh, A C Davis. Um you know, uh, in, in my experience in growing up in Yakima, um, my dad is from Sinaloa, Mexico, and my mom is from South Texas. Um, and my dad came up um, into the States as, as a farm worker, as an undocumented farm worker. And my mom came to the Pacific Northwest, her and her siblings, she has eight other siblings, and they grew up generationally in the South Texas, Northern Mexico uh, Nuevo Leon area that I've uh, actually had done some research and I've dated it back up until the 1700s. And so in fact, so they were in that area, you know, before it was, before it was Texas and even before it was the Republic of Texas um, that predated the U S Mexico war and even before it was Mexico. And so they had been there generationally and what had happened in South Texas in the 60s, um, especially around the Vietnam, uh, the U.S. Vietnam War, where that uh, farm worker kids were looking for other places to work. And in the 60s, especially, I mean, it started to take place in the late 50s, but especially in the 60s, there was a, a, a migration of uh, farm workers from South Texas that came to the Pacific, Pacific Northwest. And Erasmo Gamboa does a, a great history piece on that migration. So my family was a part of that migration that really happens from uh, word of mouth. They hear of a place that they can go work and there's a place to stay and they 
they know people who are working there and, you know, people from their town, uh, their valley. And, um, you know, their story is that, you know, they invested in a, in a car that they, 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 they thought could get them across, across the, the country to, to drive up. And um, they ended up in, in Quincy, Washington, and were there as seasonal workers. They had made a, a trip back and forth for a few seasons and then had decided to, to stay. And my mom's brothers, my Theos, had um, found more permanent work in the Seattle area. And um, other, other Theos and Theos um, stayed in agriculture at the warehouses, uh, out in the fields. My parents actually met in a small agricultural town uh, east, in East Oregon, Ontario, Oregon, settled in the Yakima area. I, I, I grew up with my mom. Uh, my parents divorced pretty early on. Like my context is, I feel like I grew up in the 90s as a, as a teenager. And at least then, you know, the Raza, the Chicano, Mexicano population were either from South Texas or from Michoacan. And I, I would even say there might have even been fewer um, Michoacanos than there are now as, uh, you know, compared to, to other, other Chicanos or people who've been in the, in Washington for, for some time, at least then, you know, the, the Latino, the Chicano population might've been at least in Yakima, maybe 20, 25%. So it, it did feel like you felt like a, a racial minority, um, especially separated by class. I mean, there was a very clear class distinction. Um, I grew up in, in Yakima public housing you know, or what people would call the projects. But Yakima has, you know, some uh, public housing complexes. And I grew up in one uh, pretty much almost my entire pre-adult life. And it was interesting because this particular public housing complex that I grew up in was, and I, and I kid you not, it's literally across the street from the juvenile court and the juvenile detention center and a group home that were all on the same corner of a block that I could see if I peeked out of my window at a, you know, in a particular angle, I could see the courthouse that little to little that I would know, I would, I would come to visit a, a few times. Um, and I would, you know, we'll have to walk across the street to, to go see my probation officer. But, you know, every, you know, every educator that I had from K-12 were, were white. There were, you know, n- uh, hardly any, uh, Latino staff. I think it wasn't until high school there was a Latino uh, security guard, you know, and then there was maybe the Spanish teacher. But that really was it. It was just very racially segregated. There was little representation. And uh, in the 90s, and what was happening, I, I think all over the country was that there was a, a spike in um, street gang violence, and it got incredibly hostile. And um, uh, gangs tend to draw a lot more attention in, in larger cities, but in the rural communities, it hits especially hard, I think, be, largely because there's a denial of what's taking place. And I remember as a kid, but nonetheless, it was just this denial and there was never addressing what the issues were. And it allowed them to, to um, you know, get bigger and get more intense. And, uh, you know, in my experience, you know, I, I, my part of my upbringing, my experience growing up is, is definitely around a lot of violence, violence inside my home, violence in my neighborhood, violence in my community. To me, that was always just a, a defining figure, uh, um, reality that I think even today, I know I, I'm still like impacted by it. I have to think about how I like navigate and uh, interact with the world knowing that, you know, I'm still thinking about like 
like violence. Yeah, and that, that's something that uh, I've spoken to a lot of friends. In fact, this last weekend or this yesterday, <laughs> we hung out. I hung out with some friends, and you know, they're all professionals. Uh, two, you know, two of them grew up in Argentina through hard times as well. But the the other three that I hung out with, um, uh, two grew up. One grew up like in, in Compton as a Chicano. And he was just telling us stories about, you know, violence in the community and uh, things that he used to see. And and it um, and mm-hmm. we were talking about that because uh, nowadays, but it's called imposter syndrome. We all came up with the conclusion that, you know, imposter syndrome, what it does is um, it, it really affects us because we've been either uh, racially traumatized or uh, infighting in the community uh, between different gangs and so on. So that always comes up in our head when we're when we're thinking like hey do do we really belong here as change makers because when we were growing up fighting and and seeing some crazy stuff and and that always comes up when I, that's one of the things that i think of when when i'm thinking like hey I, like when i'm having one of those days where i'm thinking like i may have imposter syndrome today because i'm like i'm dealing with managing you know people at work um, and you come to realize, like, no, like, this is you, like, you, you got ready, you've, you can do this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of spaces that you feel like you're interacting with, you know, so I'm talking about like this across the street and this juvenile uh, complex, you know, and there was this gas station um, that was right in front of it. And, um, you know, as a kid, it was the place that um, you would walk across the street, and if we had a dollar, you'd buy your uh, two burritos for a dollar, and your candies as a little kid. Um, but then later, as a juvenile, uh, as a juvenile, you it becomes the target for uh, beer runs and a lot of other things. But I think about the neighborhood, and it's funny because when I drive around it now, there's a lot of things that I see that I knew they were there, but I never really paid attention to because I just didn't inter- interact with it. But I can remember um, the backyard of some of the houses because these were the spaces that I would have to run through, like uh, running away from cops or getting jumped or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you. You, know, you just become familiar with the alleyways, the the spaces to dub, the ba- spaces to jump out of. Um, when you were through those rough times, you know, growing up as as a youth and young adult, earlier you were talking about you were what's considered an at risk youth, right? Uh, and you got expelled or something? Yeah, well, you know, I I would describe my experience as as surviving when I was, you know. 12, 13 years old, you know, and again, I, I, I had been around a lot of violence. You know, I, I remember going into middle school and then really feeling like um, just alienated from the rest of the, the, the school community and, and culture. And I think it's kind of at that point, um, you know, you, you got testosterone going, you know, your body's changing and there's things that you're becoming aware. If I'm not performing and behaving like the way that an, a teacher wants me to, then there's a, there's a form of um, punishment. And it's not always disciplinary. And I think people always assume like punishment is all, all disciplinary, but there's social punishment, right? There's, you're, you're, you're frozen out of, a, out of a group because you're not performing or behaving as they're asking you to, largely along uh, racial norms. You know, white racial norms, if you're not performing in, in certain white racial norms, then you're punished. And so for me in middle school, I really started to sense, I really started to sense where it felt like I either got absorbed into the dominant white culture 
or I held on to what I was much more familiar with. It, you know, it's it's a it's a Mexican kid, uh, you know, parents who are farm workers in public housing, you know, growing up poor, and uh, and all of my my friends in the same in the same uh, environment, the same situation, and so feeling like you know having to choose, and you know, of course, I'm I'm staying with what I'm familiar with, with what I feel uh, welcomed uh, in, and it had consequences. It had consequences from you know being profiled in the hallways and constantly questioned and stopped and um you know a large degree it's, it's, it's harassment and, and intimidation like letting you know what your place is and if you don't behave then you're going to be uh disciplined and it got to there was this pattern of, of regular disciplines going into the office and giving paperwork and you know these these short-term suspensions and time you know this is a, this is mid 90s and gangs were really starting to take off you know, for me and the people who I grew up with in my neighborhood, we started to see gang culture as a way to adopt um, identity and what we understood as as culturally ours, right? I think when you're young, you're trying to find what is that identity, and for us, that was an alternative to the to the dominant culture. And there wasn't a lot of um, you know options that we were aware of, but it became one. But then it also became a useful um, survival tool. Um, it became a, a vehicle to be able to protect ourselves, to be aware, but then also to have our own, um, have our own culture, have our own dress, our own language, um, the values, you know, our own ethos to, to uphold. And so for us, it felt like there was this, definitely this, this way of belonging, but then the survival aspect of it became, it was necessary when we were um, being followed by police and we are being stopped and we are being searched and cuffed and questioned and interrogated on a pretty regular basis as kids. You know, and these are grown men. Um, you know, I look back at it now and I, I can't believe they would get away with this stuff, but we would get picked up and um, driven to a police station and just interrogated, you know, as 12, 13 year old kids. And they would take pictures of us and there was no no cause for uh, arrest or, any, or anything else, you know, and largely they were able to do with it as they would take advantage of our parents' situation, whether they were, you know, afraid of the police themselves or if they were not able to speak English or if they were just working, like they were able to take advantage of things like that. So we realized that looking out for each other, it was a way to survive at the schools. It was a way to protect ourselves. And then um, as young kids, when the fight started to kick up, um, you know, we were able to hold each other, uh, have each other's back. Um, but of course, you know, an environment like that, gangs are not, um, it, it, um, it invites a, a lot of consequences. And so like the suspensions at, to some point, at one point turns into a, a full out expulsion of the Yakima school district. So as a, as a 13 year old, uh, I was expelled from the Yakima uh, school district. Uh, at that point I was told like indefinitely, like I would have to go to another school district and in that particular incident. Um, I was I was um, I was detained by a police officer in the middle school building in the principal's office, and the principal had called me in. And um, and I also kind of think when I look back, thinking about how the school um, the school's relationship with law enforcement, um, because as an I, I, I'm an educator now, and those things now we become like hypersensitive to to really think about the impact and who. Who are we protecting? 
And at that moment, I definitely wasn't protected. I, 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 as a kid, I knew and I felt like this was a way for them to finally get rid of me. And they'd had, you know, I, uh, you know, I was expelled from the district. I spent a little bit of time in juvie. Uh, again, this was something that I was not involved with. Um, but I think when you are a 13-year-old kid with a bad attitude and already already feeling angry, you know, I just didn't care. You know, quite honestly, I didn't even try to defend myself all that much clearing uh, any level of guilt or maintaining my innocence. It was just like, well, you're going to take me to juvie. That's okay. I got the homies there. You know, I wanted to check it, you know, check out the the walls uh, as it was anyways. And so being expelled from the school district, um, eighth grader uh, options were for, were, uh, for me were GED programs or some of the local, um, they called them alternative schools back then. So I was bouncing around from GED programs, to alternative school, just, Quite honestly, I would just go to space because I understood it as um, I was required by um, my probation officer to to be enrolled somewhere. But being in the gang, I was always aware that I can't just show up to unfamiliar spaces by myself. Like, I, you know, there's uh, uh, there's consequences to that. And so I was always hyper aware of like, where am I going to show up to? And, and uh, I ended up landing at um, one of the alternative schools. Um, for me, like it was a... This alternative school, it was called The Place, and it was really just some small office space on the outside. It's, it's unassuming, uh, looks like a little small um, front. And unique about this place is it's, it's, the, it's the school that all of the group home kids would be bused to, and all of the kids who were on probation were there. So basically, just all the street kids were there. And they had probably, like, I couldn't think of a lower expectation and this was supposed to be high school. I couldn't think of a lower expectation in this environment because if you showed up with a pencil, that would grant you a pass at the end of the term. And initially, you know, I was just like every other kid kind of in and out, not taking it serious. And then I realized when I finished a term and, you know, I literally was just, you know, I'd show up with at least a pencil and something to write with that they were passing me and I was getting credit for it. And I remember thinking like, damn, that's crazy. Like, how are they passing us? We're not being evaluated. We're not being tested. Nobody's really checking out our, our knowledge, what we're, what we're learning. And um, But I thought, you know what? This is going to give me to, to some high school uh, graduation credit. Um, and so I stuck it out for um, about two years. And this is just all you know credits that I'm earning, honestly, not learning much. And, but it gave me a little, a little bit of momentum. And I thought to myself, man, I, I'd like to try to get back into the regular high school would mean me and this was after two years to transfer into uh, Davis High School as a junior and I had all of these um, all of these credits and I remember trying to enroll into Davis High School and the assistant principal he wanted to have a meeting with me and he sat me down and he, and he knew my rap he knew my rap sheet in terms of the um, suspensions expulsions uh, I, I think I was um, listed as a gang member and so he was reluctant to let me in but then he looked at my transcript. He's like, well, you know, I mean, you do, you know, hey, you have all of these credits. You know, you are accounted for uh, academically. And he looked at me and said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll put you on, on, a, on a probationary status. And, um, you know, if you don't get into trouble, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let you stay. And um, that, that particular moment was really interesting because there was still a lot of uh, unresolved street matters that were happening. And so I, I just didn't think I was going to last long. Damn, man. I mean maybe a couple of weeks at best, because I wasn't 
aware of any of uh, rival gang members that were in the high school because that high school uh, fairly effectively removed anybody uh, filed or suspected of being a gang member. So they kind of just cleaned house. And so when I came in, they, they only gave me a chance. I thought, okay, I'll have a few weeks before um, they, you know, mistakenly let someone else in that's a rival or I just bump heads with somebody like walking in my car. Uh, and, you know, during that time, it was interesting because um, I was noticing some some rivals that would kind of circle the school. And uh, I don't know if it was just by chance, but it, it definitely felt like, okay, they might have heard that I was at that school. And, you know, at the, almost at the same time, and my, my story in terms of how everything changes uh, happens when uh, my first few weeks at Davis High School, uh, there, was a, there was a girl that I took a liking to, and she was going to this after school meeting, and she said it was a, it was a student club, and it was a group called Mecha. And, uh, I mean, I was curious enough, I thought, okay, I'll go, I'll go check this out. And I'm sitting in with a group of other um, Latino students. And there was a person who came into this meeting, a woman, you know, pretty tall, high heels. I think she had like a leather coat on and she stood straight up and, you know, I mean, you know, shoulders pulled back, chin up and spoke about, you know, the racist police that were coming after brown kids and locking them up. And she was going after the police like I'd never heard anybody say lie or in person. And she's just criticizing them. You know, she's and she's like saying everything that I'm seeing and experiencing, um, you know, a, a, the recipient of you know, police harassment and false arrest and being profiled. And, um, you know, even at one point being cuffed and kicked around because um, the police were pretty, um, you know, I got a lot of police stories uh, from Yakima. Um, but what she what she was sharing like really resonated for me, and it kind of gave me this this awareness that you know what what she's saying is not only what she's saying right on, but this woman is is gutsy. I mean, she's bold. She like I remember as a kid thinking like, man, she's gangster. Like you know, like the gangster gangsters and just you know the gangsters. And she was gangster gangster, and I was just really drawn to that power. Uh, so I would show up to the meetings that she would organize in the community. And really, to make like a, a long story short, she you know politicized me. Uh, she brought me under her wing. Um, her name's Luz Basan Gutierrez, and her history is was that she was a a member of La Raza Unida party in you know of all places Texas. So talking about that Texas relationship, um, this third party uh, that was really competing against the uh, you know this the, the traditional Democratic party, but this party. Uh, particularly was looking to run uh, Chicano Latino candidates on a really progressive platform. And so she was a part of that history and uh, one time was married to Jose Angel Gutierrez. And, uh, you know, I didn't know her history then. I just knew that she was fiery. She was strong and um, organized and she was just really motivated. And so when she took me under her wing and, I, you know, I then I had a community mentor, but it politicized me to like be really aware of what was going on everything from you know why do I live in public housing and why is it that my mom works so hard and our situation hasn't changed at all you know that I have an older brother and sister who hadn't even finished high school who have been in detention are dealing with their own demons and I'm on that same track all the homies are on that same track uh, but it just gave me this awareness that you know what something's got to change I got to figure that out I don't know what it is like I don't have any path or model 
but I got to figure some things out. And, you know, and the last acknowledgement that I give in terms of how things change and um, it's, it's something that I had written earlier to a homie was that this, the gang that I was running with when I was trying to make that transition back into school, um, you know, a little bit more focused on uh, my own particular goals. Um, I knew there were, there were some, um, you know, some, you know, there's some, some explaining to do. I, I got to go back to the homies and be able to have that conversation because, you know, when you put in so much uh, work in with each other, protecting each other, you really depend on each other to, to be there for you. You know, they've made sacrifices for you. They've taken their rap for you. And so, um, you know, I knew I had to have that conversation. And at the time I was um, participating in press conferences. So my men, my community mentors would bring me to these press conferences and it would get some attention on the Yakima Herald or local uh, media outlets. And so people would hear about it. And so some of the homies did as well. And I remember when I had to talk about, you know, uh, a change of direction for me, you know, I mean, and they, I, I remember they literally said like, oh, it's cool, dog. It's cool. It's cool. Do your thing. And to me, that was just their blessing to say, you know, do what you need to do. Like, don't worry about, you know, hanging out with us or, you know, whatever thing that you feel like you owe. Um, do what you need to do. That There was a sense of just being proud. And it wasn't, I wasn't trying to get out for selfish reasons or, um, you know, abandon anybody. But it was to understand what was happening and to change um, how things were in our community um, because of what was happening to us. It was a way to come back to the community um, stronger and to really, on some level, man, I mean, I have to admit, like, it's to get back to, uh, at all the wrongs that have been caused onto us. So, you know, the homies give, giving me the blessings, uh, my community mentors kind of putting me on a track. I mean, that was really a, a shift. And, you know, that allowed me, uh, surprisingly, you know, I had, was able to graduate high school on time. Not that I was uh, high school graduate ready, because mind you, I had like half of my credits that were based on uh, showing up to class with just a pencil. I wasn't academically prepared at all. In fact, when I got onto a college campus, you know, I took all the remedial courses and had to, had to start over. But it gave me this, uh, this illusion that I was ready. And so for me, that, that was enough to at least give it a try. And, um, you know, that, that, that got me at least to, to the next phase. You defined internal colonialism in your description of growing up in in that area um something that i i think i i went through that as well like i i needed to find an outlet you know because the community was trying to define me and i needed to define myself and the the gangs was the way to define myself you know mm -hmm. uh, and taking pride colonial mm -hmm. colonialism is is a subject i mean it's a subject matter in, in college and, and sociological you know uh, studies Mm -hmm. um, but something that I, I, I wanted to ask, and this is, I mean, I'm sure you dealt with this as well, then, um, something called the Stock, Stockholm Syndrome. You're well aware of that, right? The Stockholm mm -hmm. Syndrome. Growing up, did you ever confront and they were yeah. forced to assimilate and, you know, all of a sudden talk against you because they felt that, you know, they were protecting the, the, the structure of colonialism. Did, I yeah, mean, did you, you know, see that? I mean, at least what I saw and what I experienced, um, the street gang culture, I, I think, is inherently, it's inherently radical in the sense that it is rejecting 
on stream. It's, it's already critical of mainstream and it, it maybe it is a give it that kind of language, but there's already like acknowledgement, like, no, nothing wrong here. Like there's a, there's a certain madness and maybe I'm acting out at what looks like madness, but I'm really, I'm responding to like this, this very real reality. And I think when we see um, at least then like kids in school who look like us, but who are just uh, going in with this flow and, you know, and, People would accuse them as uh, acting white and, um, or rejecting who they are. And, and that might have not been entirely fair. Um, but I, I think what was like for me, what was always key in, in feeling like I was um, politicized is that it gave me a chance to not give up who I was. Because I always had this sense that it was kind of like this either absorbed or you're not. You know, there, there wasn't like this third option and the third option you know, being politicized, like, no, you know, it gave me like these models of like who the Black Panthers were, the Black Panther Party, the Brown Berets, you know, all these radicals who before us were organizing, maintaining identity. And then it wasn't until later as an adult that I really started to go down a path of uh, like ancestral um, history and knowledge. Um, I think the places that I've experienced um, rejection militancy amongst younger people wasn't until maybe I had gotten to the University of Washington and um, you know you had like historical groups you had the Mechas there but then you kind of I saw this emergence of uh, the Latino Greek system and um, you know I went to the University of Washington in 1999 and it was really at that time the, the one of the first Latino fraternities started there maybe just a couple years before then like maybe just two years before then. Um, but even then it felt like it was just building so much momentum. And a lot of the kids who were showing up to, a lot of the Latino kids that were showing up to the University of Washington, at least then were still coming from Eastern Washington. And if their parents were not farm workers, they were at least uh, one generation removed from it. But um, it was, to me, it was really surprising to see uh, the Greek the Greek system being much more appealing. It wasn't until later I kind of thought it. To, I thought about it to myself, like, well, you know, if I was somebody who was struggling to get by and I finally make it to to Disneyland, which is the University of Washington, like, why would I want to continue to uh, deal with struggle? Like, you know, when you go to a Metro meeting, it can be a little depressing because that's all you're talking about is like the struggle and the fight, and you feel like, man, I just, you know, I worked so hard just to get to the school, and I'm still, um, I feel like you're still in it. But so I, I, I see some level of like people looking for an, the easier route, but I always felt like um, spaces like Mecha really provided this like really critical space. If any, if there was any criticism, it might've been like it was too critical. We would, there would be uh, criticism of, of everything, but I think what it did was that it always stripped down what our perceptions were and really try to, um, you know, um, place the, the burden of, of truth and responsibility on, on each other and really challenge each other. So when, you know, people had these, um, I don't know, impressions of each other, or anything else, like at least we've spent some time like committed to, to like trying to find some level of truth and committed to trying to find some, um, be a part of the work. What about your college mentors, like people that stood out for me were like, and it was George Lopez, you know, the math, math. When I first got to Yakima, YBC, you were actually leaving to UW. So it was like, we didn't really get to hang out at all. Um, it was like maybe a week. I think it was a summer too. Yeah. 
we really like you pretty much let me know hey this is what's going on here and you were like i'm out you know so for me i thought like oh at least i'll I'll hang out with randy for a little bit but you get that um you know the full the randy experience should i say (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's funny you know uh, um yeah and and i'll I'll, um talk about some of the 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 mentors that i met at especially ybc you know, right after high school. And so what I was doing in high school when I was at Davis, I would spend half of my day in my classes. And again, I, um, I mentioned that I was able to transfer in with all these credits to count towards graduation. Um, I was still really unsure of like how, what, what I was going to do with this thing. You know, I'm, I'm in high school and I'm taking classes. And I, I had a homie who had an older brother who had gone to this technical program while they were in high school in Yakima. They were working at Boeing now. And I thought, man, I could, again, I, I just had no idea. Like, what is the path? I don't know what to do. And so when I was at Davis, I enrolled into, um, I, I think at the time it was called the Skills Center. And um, it, was, it was technical skills, um, um, kind of like what they have, at what they call it, CTE, um, Community Technical Education, I think is what it is. Um, and so half my day, I would I was enrolled into an aviation technician program. I was learning to become an airplane mechanic. So half of my day, I would spend at uh, Davis High School. And the second half, I would be in uh, in a hangar over at the Yakima Airport, um, taking classes to become um, an airplane mechanic. And what had happened at the end of that, towards the end of the program, the path for students who wanted to pursue certification as an airplane mechanic or a technician was a program there was only a, uh, two of them in washington state one was at moses lake and the other was at south seattle community college i had some family in seattle so I thought, okay i have a place to stay i enrolled over there and so i was enrolled and in, in, in completed um, a two-year program as an airplane technician and you know my, my first couple of months into the program um and i'd graduated high school in 95 and i was in this program between 95 and 97 my first couple of months, you know, I remember I was enrolled in, in, in this program with a, a lot of people who were older than me, people who had a, a background in mechanics or um, even uh, as a as a t- airplane technician, um, but wanted a, a certification. And we would spend some time at an airport, and they would they were the kind of people that were just airplane junkies. They could name anything in the air. Um, and I remember then knowing, like, you know, this isn't my passion, but I just didn't know where, what else to do or where else to go. And I, I, I just stuck it through and I, and I completed the program. But during that time, what I was doing is that I would spend a lot of my weekends in Yakima um, around the Metro crowd. And so I'd mentioned my cousin who was at Yakima Valley Community College. He ended up transferring to central Washington, which is in Ellensburg, uh, about 30 miles north. And so I would go hang out with him and just the social scene of Metro you know, because they were still going to the conferences, the workshops. Um, I would go to these national Mecha conferences and I was in a, in a Mecha chapter. Uh, I would still figure out a way to get in and they would take these trips to the Southwest on their uh, spring break. And I, I was just really drawn to, to being politicized. And so when I completed my technical program and I knew that that wasn't going to be for me, and it, you know, and it really is too bad because I probably passed up a, what would have been my retirement by now had I stuck it through, but it gave me a chance to decide, you know what, I, I, I can get through a college program and complete it. I'm going to go back and move back to Yakima 
and enroll into Yakima Valley Community College. Uh, I don't know what I want to do, but I just know that I, I need to be in, in some environment. And uh, when I started there and, you know, again, the, the work of, of my predecessors, they laid like the groundwork. And so when I was there and starting to get involved with Metchad, I've had a little bit of a head start because I had started in high school and I spent two years not in a chapter, but still in the scene. And so by the time I was in Yakima, I was I was ready to run. Um, and what was great, and I think what what made Yakima Valley Community College so unique was that you really did have community that were a part of Mecha. And so when I think of like who were my mentors, it was, you know, the staff at YBC, but it was also the people who would show up from the community to Mecha meetings on a regular basis. You know, whenever we had meetings with the college president, community mentors would would show up, you know, on a phone call within minutes. Um, or whenever we needed help, people would show up um, on a dime. And it was always incredible. And, you know, as a student there, so this is the first time I've ever had until that point, like a Chicano instructor, uh, or I'm taking Chicano studies, or I'm taking a math class and my, my instructor's Chicano. Uh, my counselors are Chicano. You know, community members are showing up, you know, look like me, who are committed to the cause and putting in the work. Staff members like Bernal Baca, you know, all of you being surrounded by people who've been around and who uh, had their own experience. I remember thinking like, ah, this is it. This is what it feels like to be a part of community. And, you know, there was this one experience that I had. So this is like my first year and I'm just running. I'm excited. I'm, I'm reading my books. I'm going to these conferences. I'm engaging with elders. I'm learning, um, you know, I'm participating in rallies, trying to organize some of the work on campus and, we were also making an effort to outreach to high school students. So um, over at Eisenhower High School and Davis High School, try to uh, get be involved with their Mecha chapters. And I was invited to be a, a speaker for Cinco de Mayo uh, at Davis High School. And, oh, man, what a great honor. You know, that's incredible because that's my alma mater. I, I get a chance to come back as a speaker. You know, to me, that's like that. That is affirming, you know from one experience of feeling like ostracized from a school system to finally coming back and sharing who I am. And as I, um, just before this invitation, um, it, it literally just days before I was invited, um, I was also invited by the students from Eisenhower High School. Now, Eisenhower High School in the 90s when I was there um, was predominantly white and it was considered like the, 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 you know, the preppy school on the other side of the tracks. Um, and that's what its reputation was in the 80s and 90s. And I know this not only from the outside, but I was enrolled in Eisenhower High School for a couple of days until I was uh, I was literally asked to leave um, at no cause other than the perception. And so um, and so anyways, um, back to the, to the Eisenhower students from Eisenhower Mecha had invited me there because they wanted to have a meeting with their principal because they wanted to have an event for Cinco de Mile that the school refused to have. And I, as a community college student, I thought, yeah, I'll come in as a community member. I'll just be there with you guys. There's nothing for me to, to take a lead on other than just be there. Um, and so I showed up the morning that they were going to meet with the principal. The kids were, uh, there was about maybe 15 students who went into the, to the main office and had asked to meet with the principal. And they were told at the front office, well, you, you all don't have a, an appointment you, you can't meet with the principal and, you know when you're young you don't know the, the protocol but they were pretty insistent and so they had seen the principal step out of the, out of his office for for a moment 
And the Yale firm said, hey, we want to have a meeting with you right now. And he kind of just lifted up his hands in a, in a stopping gesture and said, no, wait, you know, schedule an appointment. I'm not talking to you right now, but really dismissive. And granted, you know, they got 15 brown kids who were pretty anxious, who probably never showed up that way. And they were dismissed that way. And so the kids are, they're kind of going back and forth saying, we want something now. And after a, a short while, I finally interject and just ask, why don't you schedule them? Why don't you just meet with them right now? You're not doing anything right now. Why don't you just meet with them right now? What's the problem? And at some point, he turns his attention to me and asks, you know, who are you? I said, well, you know, I'm just a community member. He kind of sizes me up. And uh, he was a new principal at the time. He says, well, you, you have to leave or you're going to get charged for trespassing or something or the other. And I thought, okay, well, I'm not here to um, have the cops call on me. So I'm just, you know, and I was in between classes at YBC anyway. So I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll just leave. And I start walking out of the hallway and the, the other the high school students are following with me. And um, spontaneously, somebody starts the solidarity clap or what people call the meta clap. And they start the solidarity clap and it gets loud and loud. And, you know, there's a chant here and there. And the principal's kind of behind us as a group as I'm walking out. And he is a little startled. And he, he uh, walks right up next to me and he grabs me by my arm. He says, come with me now. And he's pointing in the direction of the main office. And, you know, and then I, I'm, I'm maybe 21 or 22 year old, 22. You know, I'm not a 15 year old kid anymore. And as he grabs me by my arm and is telling me to go in the other direction, um, you know, I look at him and say, you're going to need to let go of my arm. And he, and he says again, you know, come to me with my, come with me to my office. I said, no, you need to let go of my arm. And uh, he finally does. And I walk away and I, and I drive back to YVC campus because uh, I have a class coming up. And uh, after class, I'm in the, um, I think what they call the, the hub, the student lobby after my class later that afternoon. And I'm in the lobby and um, two police officers show up to the student lounge and they're asking for me. And, uh, you know, I say, I'm right here. And uh, they ask if they, can, if they can talk to me outside. And I was really curious. Like I, I've been, in, I've had enough run-ins with the police like I know when I should really worry for my well-being and other times where I'm not. So and they were really posturing. Um, they almost seemed like they were showing up out of uh, some level of inquiry or protocol. So I, I was curious enough, uh, willing to, to step out. And they were explaining that they were going <laughs> to that they were going to issue me a citation for disrupting the peace. <laughs> and so wow. he had ticketed he had ticketed me. And, and I still have a copy of this ticket. Um, I think that I think the exact language was something to the effect of disrupting school activities. And I was cited. And when I was outside um, and they're issuing this ticket um, and it was near a parking lot, I looked over and I see the principal um, of this of Eisenhower High School. He was there like looking and I am assuming he's making sure that this, the police were going to follow through with what they said they were going to do. And I thought it was like, I just nodded my head and I thought, okay, this is interesting. Cause to me, in my mind, I'm like, okay, like I know the, the, the playbook on this one. Like I knew it to a T I was like ready, like, okay, we're going to do that. Fine. If, if that's the best shot you have is giving me a citation. Okay. Like the worst thing that a school can do is give attention to things like that. So straight from there, I drove myself to the Yakima police station. And I filed a report for um, for assault charges because this principal had grabbed me by my arm, um, 
unneedingly. You know, I wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't uh, authorized to do any like physical restraint of any human being, let alone somebody who's not uh, engaged with him. So I, you know, I went in, I filed an assault charge and, um, you know, maybe a day or two later, um, the superintendent of Yakima gets a hold of me and asks for a meeting because he had heard that this was starting to get some attention. And, you know, and I had agreed to this meeting. And later that afternoon, um, I had called a community meeting with some of the students, the community members, um, YDC Mecha, um, to talk about this particular incident. And we had this community meeting and there was an incredible turnout and people were pretty, you know, fed up with, you know, police, with how schools treat kids and, uh, you know, a lot of parents there. And one of the school officials from the central office was there and he had seen like, okay, this shit's getting out of hand. You know, we need to do something about it. So by the time I had the meeting with the superintendent, they were, you know, ready to offer concessions like, hey, you know, what can we do to uh, address this? What the principal did was, uh, you know, you know, in other words, they said it was wrong. That shouldn't have happened. You know, they should have taken an opportunity to, to listen to the kids. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't in any position to, or I didn't have any motivation to, of any level of retaliation. Ultimately, the purpose of that meeting was that the kids would be heard. And, you know, the Cinco de Mayo, more than anything, is, again, it's just an opportunity to feel seen, to, be, to feel validated, uh, to make decisions on behalf of themselves. And so having that conversation with the superintendent, like that's what that's about, you know, work there and we can resolve this. Like this citation, this assault charge, you know, these things are, are frivolous, you know, but I can draw attention to it. I can get a community to show up, you know, because the community's tired of it, you know. And so I'm taking a playbook out of, you know, what Chicanos are doing in the 60s and 70s. You know, I was learning about Jose Angel Gutierrez and how he would politicize people and he would make events, like give it all the attention it needs. Know, give it that oxygen. You know, I wasn't going to keep this thing to myself because it wasn't just me. And um, what ended up happening was that we had agreed to terms and we had a, this follow-up. It was a beautiful. <laughs> we had this follow-up community meeting. You know, parents were there, the students, the mechas um, were all there. And um, the superintendent, a couple of people from central office, and Eisenhower's principal is there. And so we had written up this statement and uh, of these terms and like this this letter of intent and what we were going to do to to build our community um, together and uh, the principal and I had signed on to it and we had shaken hands and there's this like beautiful photo and article that was put together by one of the uh, uh, Spanish media outlets um, I think I still have it somewhere but uh, you know just to kind of address what was going on there and so you know as this was happening in Eisenhower like two days later I have this um, speaking engagement at Davis High School and you know and I do a single the mile speech and I had a really mixed reaction um I think part of it was because um people had heard what had happened at Eisenhower but then there were a lot of students who were really like really dug into um like things can change like you can really start to break um that uncomfortableness of like these you know these white um racial norms of of being in your place. And, um, and so even though I, I, I had the honor of speaking at Davis High School and had uh, received a, a lot of congratulations uh, from it, um, I was later uh, told a few days after that I was, I was banned 
from Davis High School and I was banned from Eisenhower High School. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think up until a few years um, that that so-called band had held until I became like a, a part of this K-12 system as a, a school district administrator. Um, but so all of the while, like these, like these little um, incidences are happening, little movements and, and shifts. And, you know, the community mentors that were able to show up um, was always incredible. I, I never felt like I'm on my own. I'm going out on a limb. It always felt like, you know, I always had this acknowledgement. I would talk to my mentors about it. They would give me their blessings. Um, and even now, you know, a lot of the people who I've met at YBC, like Bernal Baca, um, who is somebody who I, I you know, I, I still connect with, who I consider a, a mentor, um, you know, I, I credit my academic path to my doctorate degree right now, um, mostly, not entirely, but mostly because of my community mentors. I remember when I was finishing up my uh, community, uh, my associate's degree, my two-year college degree. I had no, again, no idea what to do. Um, and some of my mentors like directing me to the four-year schools and to transfer. And they were talking about Wazoo and UW. And as a farm worker kid, like that was just like a distant dream. Like there's no way they're going to let me into places like that. And, you know, going in and um, being in those spaces, I remember – um, days after I earned my bachelor's degree um, out of the UW Seattle campus and coming back to Yakima, I think I'd met up with Bernal Baca at YBC. You know, this was, you know, not too long after I'd gotten my degree and finished my bachelor's degree. I'm coming back. I'm going to be down for the movement. You know, that's the, that's the, that's the dream. You know, that's, that's the, that's the message that we had gotten as machistas. And I remember um, like being so proud of myself and telling Bernal, like, Hey man, look, I got my bachelor's degree. It's from the university of Washington. And him looking at me, he was like, oh, that's nice, nice. And he says, you know, when are you going to get your master's degree? And I remember thinking like, man, this guy, who does he think he is? Man? Does, does he know what it <laughs> took for me to get this degree? Like, does he have any idea? And I remember thinking like, okay, all right, if he thinks I should get it, then, um, that's what I'm going to work on. I'm going to work on a master's. And, you know, I, I had a pretty significant gap by the time I worked towards it, but it was always on my mind. And I went off and got a master's degree. After I got my master's degree, a few years after then, I was at a conference and a, another mentor of mine, uh, Heno Nueva, um, she sat me down. We were at an event. She was like, hey, Randy, I want to talk to you. And, um, you know, we had been in a few meetings and have had conversations. Heno uh, Nueva Morales, she was asking me about my academic past and, like, what I want to do. And she looked at me in my face. So as we were sitting down, she says, hey, you need to go get your doctorate degree. And I remember thinking, like, who is she? Why is she telling me this? Like, I'm cool. Like, I, you know, I got a decent job. You know, I'm hanging out. I'm doing my thing. Like, why would I want to give myself that headache? But it just really weighed on me. Like, man, maybe that's I, I, sh I should do that. That's exactly really that was the difference of why I decided to explore it and, you know, enroll and was admitted and, um, you know, started that, that uh, last leg of the journey. But it was community mentors who would literally sit me down and say, hey, you know, we need you to do this. And so that's why I always felt like the degree, you know, the, the, a lot of the academic work was to always bring it back to the community. Like it's not mine. It's a, it's a, it's just a community resource. I'm just something that I'm trying to bring back. But yeah, all of these mentors along the way, man, I've always felt really, um, you know, blessed. Some of our audience would, would probably want to know what, um, you know, when you transitioned from YBCC 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you went to, uh, was it Evergreen or UW Strait? To the University of Washington, Seattle campus. Nice. So when you went to the University of Washington, um, what did you what did you major in, by the way, there while you were yeah, going get you, getting your BA? I studied history and political science. My first quarter at YBC, and uh, you know, I, I, it wasn't something that I was ready for academically because he was a professor that you know really didn't let up. You know, there were no excuses. He was a he was a professor that really pushed me to really think. Um, and challenge what you know I understood is how how societies function and um, it was interesting because then he was pretty out about it he was a a white gay Marxist and I remember as a kid you know because I'm I don't know maybe 19 20 years old thinking like man that's pretty bold you know here in Yakima you know this is 20 plus years ago and that that's just not something that people really came out with his knowledge and willing to really argue his beliefs in terms of being homosexual, but especially being, you know, uh, really a leftist, you know, and he was pretty, uh, pretty strong about his Marxist views. You know, he would like denounce uh, U.S. policy and uh, relations and the Constitution. And as a kid, you know, I was just really blown away. But I was really impressed with. But he was somebody who, t- who turned me on to, to political science as, as a study. When I had, I had approached him about um, uh, four-year schools that I should consider, because uh, I was kind of set on transferring to Washington State University, uh, mostly because I had I had friends, I had other machistas who were going there, and he turned me on to uh, UW, and I had applied. <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, um, I wasn't offered admissions because um, I was deficient in, uh, uh, I, I think, a credit or a subject. You know, back then there used to be what was called a um, a guaranteed uh, transfer agreement in Washington State, and so what it meant was, if you earned um, a number of credits in all the areas that satisfied the agreement, then the four-year public schools in Washington State would uh, would promise you admissions, which was pretty incredible because a, a kid like me, who Although I had graduated high school with a diploma, I wasn't necessarily high school academic. You know, I had started from the bottom at the community college level, and I was slowly building up my skills. But I um, was starting to finally do well, turn and uh, completed my associate's degree. But I wouldn't con- have considered myself academically competitive, even as a transfer student, had it not been for that um, guaranteed uh, transfer agreement that we had in Washington State. And so. Although I had satisfied it um, to be able to transfer over, there was there was a, a deficiency. There was something that I was missing. And initially, I was told, you know, you're you're going to have to go back to YBC and, and complete this before we can honor the agreement. And I remember uh, that spring feeling really bummed out because I was really set on it. And I'd been making all of these uh, trips from Yakima to Seattle, driving back and forth because I wanted to um, not only leave my um, my paperwork and my documentations, I wanted to interact with people. I wanted to figure something out. It was kind of like this this hustler approach to figuring out this problem. And I remember one of my last trips, and this was like, you know, mid to late summer. I was already under the impression that I wasn't going to be offered admissions, but I wanted to do update a document. I made a drive over. I was meeting with an admissions counselor. And um, we were sitting there, and um, there was a person who walked in, uh, an older Chicano, and I didn't know him at the time. And he looked at me. And uh, the advisor that I was working with uh, was a white female. 
And so he noticed me and says, hey, what are you doing here? And I explained to him, hey, you know, I was applying, um, but I'm not going to be able to get in because I'm missing a class. And uh, he took a look at my transcript and he asked me where I'm from. And he said, uh, hey, work on um, a petition um, right now and leave it to leave it for me before you leave. And I said, all right. And I, I really know what that was, but the advisor did. And so we drafted up a statement just explaining my circumstance. And I left it with him, uh, walked over, I walked into his office and he says, all right. Well, he says, well, you know, congratulations. You know, you're going to start at the University of Washington in, in two weeks, you know, get ready. And I was, you know, I was just really surprised. I'm like, damn, you know, and I remember telling him, all right, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I won't, I won't disappoint you. And he tells me, uh, don't disappoint yourself. And um, the person, by the way, is, is his name is uh, Enrique Morales who was like an old school Chicano at the University of Washington, part of the, the history of the University of Washington, like first cohort, among the first cohort of Chicanos who came from the Yakima Valley. And his whole family had been really active. And uh, he, he really made the difference because honestly, had I not been able to start at UW Seattle that fall, I would have just gone somewhere else. I just didn't want to take any time off. And um, so I'm pretty excited about that. And um, before I was offered admissions, what was happening, um, a good part of that, of that year was um, a conversation around the World Trade Organization being held in Seattle, Washington, which meant um, like these multinational um, uh, corporations were looking at making a, a global trade agreement. Um, in other words, uh, you know, supporting the, uh, you know, these ne neoliberal policies that, um, that allowed this free trade, but the problem with it was, with it was, it, there were very little to no conversations around the protection of labor, the protection of environment, and um, as these conversations were taking place and taking place even within Mecha, what resonated with us is that it sounded very familiar to NAFTA, and so NAFTA as a North American Free Trade Agreement um, between uh, Mexico, U.S. and, and Canada, um, ultimately what it allowed was to. Um, allowed this free trade, but in Mexico, where um, particular um, communal rights were held, um, as uh, you know, historically as part of their uh, part of their constitution, that had been undone, um, and that it um, ultimately uh, caused a reaction of of indigenous people in South Mexico to uprise in the name of the Zapatistas, um, who had picked up arms and um, really drew a, drew a, a attention to this to this. Um, uh, to this trade um, problem that was undoing historically um, owned lands um, where that where people had lived off for 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 you know for generations, and so I remember you know in, in Mechas in the early '90s or in the mid '90s and having these conversations about you know what is this about you know and then really being inspired by the Zapatistas and. Even then, there were machistas who would, who would make these trips to, uh, to Chiapas to learn more about the Zapatistas. So it became a very regular conversation in Mecha circles around these trade agreements. And it's, you know, when people think about um, immigration trends and patterns, largely it came from these kinds of trade agreements, whereas people for generations were able to survive on their own lands, were no longer able to because their lands were, were divided up and their, the crops that they were able to sell in the market were now being outbidded by these larger corporations, you know, especially like corn. And so it caused them to kind of have to go into the cities. And now 
where they used to uh, have a self-sufficiency were now having to sell their labor into, into the cities and which included you know going going north into the, the United States so we see like the, the increase in uh, immigration into the US but again largely because of these these kinds of policies um, and so when we were hearing about this convention taking place um, there was a lot of conversation uh, that was happening with student organizations nationally and so at the time in in, in 1999 I was um, elected as um, the national one of the national co-chairs of Mecha so Mecha as an organization is broken up into chapters throughout the U.S. And then these chapters are organized within regions. So kind of a big chunk of um, area. So in Washington, it's, you know, it's, it had been a part of this Pacific Northwest region that was at one time Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. And, um, and then the national structure, it kind of represents chairs that kind of spoke on behalf of the organization. And so at the time I was um, elected as a co-chair for national Mecha, and there were national student organizations that were reaching out to us, wanting us to get involved in the protest of the WTO that was taking place in Seattle. And so we were already having these conversations largely because it was in our backyard. In our backyard, and um, you know, I had participated in a, in a conference. There was a, a, a kind of a mini convention over in New York that I was invited to, me along with the other national uh, co-chair, um, learning about what. The, the impact of the WTO, what the actions um, that were going to take place. And um, when we returned and we are sharing this information, you know, it was interesting because the history of, of National Mecha, yeah, I remember we were having these conversations on the National Mecha um, platform about the WTO and how important it is for us to be involved. And interestingly is that there, there was some pushback on Mecha getting involved in, in this particular demonstration. I, I think there was, um, it was uh, to some degree on the premise that it was more of a, um, like a white liberal issue. It wasn't necessarily our issue. People were making the connections with um, Chicanos or, or, or La Raza and why it was important to us. But being here in Washington, uh, and a, a lot of Machistas here in the Northwest, we kind of understood how important it was, but nonetheless, it was a it was a resolution that was voted down. Um, you know, if you look at the the archives of Mecha in terms of taking a position against the WTO before the convention took place, um, it didn't pass. And so, in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we had made a decision that we were going to go forward on our own in terms of organizing um, against the WTO. And so, when I was offered admissions into you uh, know Seattle, it was great. It was like, okay, it's going to be I'm going to get a chance to be right there. And that fall, you know, being involved with the Mecha chapter and they were already having their conversations, but then a lot of activity really kicked up in terms of organizing uh, trainings, um, uh, a lot of groups coming from, you know, all over the country. It was a pretty incredible scene. Um, and I remember thinking like, man, it was uh, something that I felt like I had, there was a bit of a learning curve for myself because my issues that I felt I was organizing around were far more local. You know, farm worker issues, Yakima Valley, police profiling, those kinds of things. And um, coming to UW Seattle, you know, the conversations were much more global. And um, and so everything leading up to the, the WTO, you know, every day there was, a, a, you know, there were training speakers, people from all over the world were coming and arriving 
um, people that were supporting the WTO, people that were against it. And I think what was one of the more incredible things for UW, uh, Mecha, Mecha the UW, was that leading up to the WTO, um, there were rumors that uh, there were go- there was going to be a Cuban delegation um, straight from Cuba, and that there were even rumors that Fidel was going to be a part of that fil- uh, uh, a delegation. And I remember as Mecha, we're like, we are super excited. You know, we thought, man, what would it be? And, you know, and then it kind of felt a little, uh, it almost felt a little dangerous because we, there were also then the rumors of, you know, if that happens, that he would be detained and there would be, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, agitation and violence. And um, he ended up not coming, but they did send a delegation. And um, we had, you know, somehow we managed to reach out to that delegation because we were interested in hosting them at the UW Seattle campus, because initially when we heard Fidel was going to come, we were just, and I don't even remember if we were sending emails or letters, but we were saying if you'd come to UW Seattle to speak. But the delegation did come and they, they accepted the, the, the invitation. And we had some students from, um, I think it might have been the University of Havana, who came over. And these, these are student leaders. And they spoke on campus. And it was just incredible just to see like their consciousness and their activism and their commitment. I mean, they were, you know, they were like little Fidel's. I mean, it was it was incredible to, to see that. But I remember like their security team, like you really had the sense that they were serious, that they were coming in opposition of, and not only that, but they were coming in a very hostile environment, you know, i.e. the U.S. who, you know, made uh, endless assassination attempts on not only Fidel, but have had a history of trying to disrupt um you know, Cuban society and the Cuban economy and the ongoing embargo. And so all of this activity is going on. And, you know, for us, Mecha, you know, it was a conversation that we had in terms of making the connections. And so for us, the connection was the Zapatistas. And, um, you know, we were trying to figure out like the messaging because a lot of, you know, a lot of Latinos students are asking, you know, why are we getting involved? Uh, The appearance um, was that it was a, um, a white liberal issue because it was predominantly white people. I mean, it, it's Seattle and uh, environmental justice. Um, you know, it tends to be made up mostly a, a, of white organizers. And so as we're having these conversations, it kind of like for us was pretty clear that it's about connecting the Zapatista struggle. And so we ended up adopting the imagery of the Zapatistas with um, the red bandanas across our face as a peace mask. Um, the black attire, even the the full black um, ski mask that the Zapatistas were um, known for, largely to conceal their identity. We weren't necessarily trying to conceal our identity, but we were just wanting to make the messaging uh, clear. And it's interesting because when you go to marches and rallies, it's probably a little bit more common to see people with uh, the bandana as a face mask. But it, at least then, it didn't. It wasn't something that I had noticed, and so it was really cool to see that as a visual. Um, and, you know, I, I remember that the day of the, uh, the protest, you know, we, there was a student contingent that was starting at the University of uh, Washington, Seattle campus, and was going to make their way to, uh, Seattle Central campus, and then eventually to downtown Seattle. There was also a labor contingent that started elsewhere. There was an immigrant rights contingent that started, I believe, further south. And so there were all of these groups, but they were ultimately going to converge in downtown Seattle. And it wasn't something that I was, you know, I don't, I, you know, for me, I, I didn't 
understand um, the magnitude of this of this rally. You know, just participating in a lot of marches. Um, I took it as you know it being a, another march. You know, if Seattle is going downtown, so I thought that okay, that's going to be the the big thing. But to see you know nearly fifty thousand people converge into downtown Seattle and um, be organized and represent and be loud. I mean, it was an incredible scene and people will know of it as, um, you know, the the violence that broke out um, between protesters, demonstrators and, and, and police. Um, but I, being there, I would largely attribute it to the police really not being ready because, you know, there was definitely an overreaction which caused a lot of the uh, the chaos and you know people running in different directions you know we as Mecha had made the decision that we were there just to make it to downtown and we've completed um what we wanted to do um, largely because we also had members who were undocumented so we didn't want to take the position that we were going to stay there to get arrested and some groups weren't they had made a decision that they were going to go downtown and they were going to stay there to get arrested to ultimately like back up this this police uh, system as, as a strategy um, and so, you know, when we had arrived downtown, we had some members that split up. I stuck around um, just to kind of see what was going on and seeing police fire off concussion, uh, concussion grenades, um, uh, pepper spray, uh, and just kind of just uh, what looked like just uh, smoke bombing, you know, uh, you know, large crowds was, uh, you know, as a kid from Yakima, it was just something I'd never seen or, or been a part of. And that lasted for a good week. Uh, you know, every day there were groups that were walking into downtown and disrupting. And, you know, and, and people wonder, like, you know, do these things ever matter? These protests, these demonstrations, all it does is cause chaos and property damage. But what was happening on the inside impacted the inside of that convention. Because people were talking about it, world leaders were talking about it, and ultimately it threw off their agenda. You know, th the goal that they had set for themselves was not accomplished. So largely the protesters did succeed because not only did it draw attention, but it disrupted this particular convention, which was just incredible. And, you know, there's a story that came out shortly after, um, and I'd spoken of the, the Cuban delegation. And, you know, they were a little worried because, you know, they had their own security team and they just weren't sure. They just don't know who to trust, especially being in the U.S. But the story that we had heard, this was after the convention because we had a follow-up um, conversation with them was that, um, they were, um, I believe, entering the convention, um, uh, you know, their own particular delegation. And so with the protesters, what they were doing was stopping people from coming in. So they were blocking doors, blocking streets. And this, the Cuban delegation, when they arrived and they had announced themselves to these protesters, the protesters cleared the way to letting them come in and ultimately saying, you know what, you guys get the free pass because you guys are coming in to being critical of what's going on and are going to look out for our interests. So. When people like question um, what demonstrators and protesters actually know or what's going on, I mean, to me, that's those are just examples of you know, they absolutely understand what's happening. You know, these aren't just uh, people with nothing better to do who are showing up downtown to, you know, cause cause chaos. But it was a it was a very conscious, critical group, and I think for Mecha, you know, after then, I mean, it really became about like being much more aware of international struggle. And so, again, for me, it felt fairly new. And um, but I think that might have been the case for a lot of other machistas. It was something that, you know what, this is something we got to read up on and pay attention to. Um, 
learn more about uh, what's happening in Mexico and Central America uh, and, and really the rest of the world. And um, a lot of our workshops, speakers, the content that we were bringing in, I, I think reflected that because um, we knew it was um, like being able to make those connections. You know, when people talk about like think globally, act locally, I mean, it became um, like a real experience, um, I think, for Mecha in Seattle and a lot of other Mechistas and other chapters. I mean, would you say your your activism and learning how to be civically engaged, advocacy in that form, would you say that had a lot to do as well with your, I guess, success in school? Um, you know, your persistence in, you know, getting your, your EDD or which is similar to a PhD. Would you say that helped uh, give you the ganas? You know, we talk about ganas sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, when you had barriers, you confronted it with, with, with your, with your understanding of your experience and so on. Yeah, I, I would attribute like Mecha making my education relevant uh, all throughout college. You know, yeah. had there not have been space that Mecha was providing, um, I, I think I would have had a hard time really connecting. What was it that I was trying to do? You know, and so people think about like, what is your purpose, and why are you doing the work that you do? For me, it was. You know, I am a student and I'm earning a degree because I want to be able to come back and, and be a part of my community and really change uh, what, I, what I've experienced and what, what a lot of other people have experienced. And so Mecha, you know, feeling like they were the group that was really at the forefront of a lot of these issues, you know, whether it was uh, race, class, uh, critique of of uh, police, of incarceration, of trade, of migration, of, of college admissions, having enough Chicano studies, you know, these institutions doing enough for our communities. I mean, they were, they were there. And so for me, it always felt like this is a vehicle to, to be a part of, and they're really pushing on these issues. And, the, you know, the other aspect too was um, like on a very personal level was that it became the space to um, then be on my own like cultural journey. Because like to me, it was like that's the that's the nurturing part of Meta is that I gave me a chance to like understand the ancestral history of who I was and embrace it. Because in Mecha, that was something that was very common culturally speaking, was that it was this critique of dominant culture, but then it also said, you know what? But we also have a, a very long history of ourselves and and to bring that forward and what does it mean, you know, to be a you know a, a more contemporary person. And so for me, like it, it just gave me that 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 core that I, you know, it's interesting because of all the, the Mecha experience that I look back at. To me, like the, the the cultural piece is the one that I think about the most, more than the the direct action and all the events and the things that have happened. It's it's that stuff. It's been, um, you know, what the the talking circles that I've been more a part of recently talks about la cultura cura. You know, the the culture is the medicine. And, uh, you know, I think about that more and more and like, how do I use that as medicine? Speaking from a, as a person who, as a kid, was in a state of survival and had a survivalist mentality, that is no longer useful for me right now. I, I can't have that as a, as a husband, as a father. In fact, it can be, um, it can be, it can have a very uh, serious uh, negative effect. And so, and it was something that I, um, especially I, I credit my wife, my partner, she had drawn my attention to as, you know, cause I would, I would interact in certain ways when things got, um, 
uh, you know, tense or there was conflict, you know, I responded in a particular way. That was exactly how I responded when I'm a, like a 15 year old kid in the streets of Yakima. And I, I can't do that anymore. And, um, but it, what it meant for me to do was then I can't have this uh, survivalist mentality, but I need to draw upon culture as medicine and, um, you know, lack of a better term, kind of like do some of that healing process, you know, that, that self, um, um, self-growth process. And one of the, you know, it's interesting because uh, right now I, I live in, uh, in, in Bellevue, Washington. In Bellevue, um, it's a fairly affluent place. I mean, when you talk about Washington, that's probably one of the more affluent uh, zip codes. And um, it was, you know, honest, personally speaking, I thought it would be the last place that I, I would ever live. But um, I remember, I mean, I think it was the first few months that I was living here in Bellevue, and I had all of these microaggressions that were happening around me. But um, there was a there was a trip that I'd made to, um, I think it was the, the drugstore. I was picking something up, my wife and I, and we walked in, I think it was like a Bartels. And as I walked in, um, there was these two younger guys who were in there, and they were being a little loud. And um, I kind of had this sense that they were maybe either uh, intoxicated, they were on something, they were definitely drawing attention to themselves. And I noticed that I was, uh, as I was walking down the aisle, we were going to cross paths. And as we were crossing paths, I, I, cho- I shoulder checked him and he looked at me and he apologized. And he kind of stepped back and so, you know, and he continued to walk on. And my wife looked at me and was like, why did you do that? And I, I explained to her, like, and I had to check him, man. I mean, he was he was coming at uh, coming into the space and I was a little worried in how he was going to respond. And I needed to know, like, you know, are you are you going to are you going to cause trouble or are you just going to, you know, kind of chill out? And, you know, this is something that she didn't understand. And so for me, like survivalist mentality was that I was worried what this guy was going to do. And so I would rather know by bumping into him if there was going to be conflict. So at least I could be ready versus me walking to my car or me being at the checkout stand and something's happening that I, I, I feel like I had less control of. But it was this very survivalist mentality. It's like something that's very minor. And it, it could seem... Um, uh, you know, my, my wife described it as macho. And I said, yeah, you're right. But when I grew up, like you had to do these little things to have a sense of um, awareness and safety, because otherwise, you, you, know, you know, how we would describe it, you know, you'd be caught slipping. And but anyway, yeah. so as, I, as I think about that, I'm like, but you know what, I, I can't be doing that. So it's those little things that I can't be doing. I can't be sizing people up. And not that I get into any scuffles. I'm, I'm a grown man. I'm a family man. And I, I have a job. And I think about those things. But even the microaggressions that I'm not acting out, and but I can, I can still feel it inside my body, like that's problematic. And that's, it can be poison. And so, um, you know, I, I think about that stuff in terms of my own cultural uh, medicine to um, to address some of those things that I, I had used that have, uh, I think, lingered in my body. And so, but Mecha, I felt that that put me on that cultural path because one of the first things, one of the first experiences that I participated in culturally that I felt like it woke up ancestral DNA was watching Danza for the first time as a 19-year-old kid and feeling it and seeing it and, and smelling the copal and realizing like, this is me. 
like to me, like it just something shook and changed in my DNA. And, and I, I think about those things, but I always think about how do I go back and use that as medicine? Now, how do I bring it to my family and to my kids? And that's kind of led me to a path of like a men's circulo um, and, and having these conversations and really being, be, finally being able to address um, some of the past uh, harm. And I don't know, that's, that's one of the things that are, you know, in our professions and so on. We Sometimes we need an outlet, even when we have families. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just talked about, yeah, the sequel that I'm referring to, it's it's there's one that uh, was initiated by the National Compadres Network, and so they support these smaller sequels, um, mostly throughout the Southwest. And so I was really turned on to their model and their history, and they've been around, I, I think, for thirty plus years. Um, I'd gone to a, a retreat, but I'm, and I, I just finished a training not too long ago because I'm interested in being able to have a seat cool on it and really focus on, on young people. Um, and so I'm, I'm not there yet. I feel like I'm still a student of it and I'm still learning, but it, it is uh, something that I, I, I want to bring to the, to the community. Is there anybody you want to send a shout out to say, like literally say like, Hey, thank you. Is there anybody uh, or anything that you look forward to in the future? Yeah, I, I would definitely give a, a shout out to, um, uh, you know, to, to the homies uh, that, I, that I ran with in the gangs, uh, you know, they, you know, we were surviving and um, I'm, I'm able to check in with a couple of, uh, of them every now and then. And, you know, and, the, you know, the reality is, is that like street life, gang life, it, there's nothing romantic about it. You know, it caused a lot of harm. It caused a lot of uh, time in car, you know, with people being incarcerated, drug addiction, violence, abuse. And there, I, you know, I still have a few homies that are still um, maintaining and you know I always credit them to um, being able to hold me down and who gave me uh, the support when I needed it so you know you know always like a, a big shout out to uh, Oscar Rangel uh, Robert uh, Robert Enriquez um, you know Jose Ariano you know Ruben Guzman you know there's a whole you know cohort of, of knuckleheads who you know, we were trying to just uh, get through and, you know, the community mentors who um, who had adopted me and, and brought me under their wing, uh, Luz Gutierrez, uh, Ricardo Garcia, Bernal Vaca, um, you know, Enrique Morales. Um, God, man, there's there's like a good a dozen. Uh, Ricardo Sanchez, um, you know, Lee Vargas, you know, a lot of people who probably didn't consider me a, a mentee, but it were. They were people who um, I kind of looked for for advice and, and guidance. Hino uh, Nueva, uh, Morales, um, and, and a lot of others. And then, you know, in my peers, you know, my uh, people who've been holding me down, people who I network with now, and we engage. And, you know, my friends that I had here in Seattle and, and then my family big time, you know, my mom, who, um, you know, was uh, the most giving and sacrificing person who I, I, I know. Um, you know, I always hope that I, I've made her proud. Um, every diploma, my high school diploma, my community college degree, my University of Washington bachelor's degree, my master's from Seattle University, and my doctorate from the University of Washington, all of those degrees are on the wall of my mom at her home in Yakima. Uh, once I've earned them, I put them there because she, she deserves them. 
And, you know, as far as you know, where, my, where my work is now, you know, I, I work in uh, a K-12 system. And so I work mostly with uh, adult staff and understanding some of our, our racial equity work and how we move the work. Um, this, you know, I, I, for me, being in a K-12 system is like at the center of community. And I remember for some time I wanted to be on a college campus and, and that's important work there too. But I, I also think that being in a K-12 system, it's, you know, it's where the community is at, it's where everyone is. And getting a chance to be here uh, for me is important. Uh, you know, it's something that I want to keep doing as far as, um, you know, the community partnerships, doing some, some state work. Uh, more recently, it um, been selected to the Commission of Hispanic Affairs and I'm serving um, in that capacity as far as, you know, making some recommend policy recommendations. And uh, there's some things that I want to get more involved with, you know, political campaigning in support of other candidates, not necessarily myself, but I want to see people run and I'm trying to figure out ways and how to support them. And then on a, a more local level, um, you know, I'm hoping in the future to have some some youth circulos. Uh, uh, you know, my dream is to be able to connect circulo with um more outdoor navigation, being out in the, uh, you know, hiking, backpacking, out in nature, out in the wilderness, and understanding and how we navigate our systems. But I always think of that as spaces for rites of passage. And as a kid, we never really felt like there was a sense of rite of passage, but the gang culture in, in you know, in, a, in unfortunate circumstances, you know, there were places for rite of passage. But I think we need that as young men, I think young boys, boys of color, I think that is uh, an important experience for them to be acknowledged by the community as you are growing and we we confirm you. And so my hope through Siculo and having an outdoor component that we can have these rites of passage for, for young people. So those are the things that kind of uh, stir in me that I think about that I'm hoping to get to. And you know what? I want to give you a big shout out. You, you. If it wasn't for you and your cohort and 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 you know machistas, I yeah, I would have stayed and I would have been. And I'm not saying stayed, but I'm. I would have been in really bad shape as, as far as my life. You know, I was a dysfunctional, at risk youth. So, you know, seeing y'all and and seeing that y'all cared about your community helped me care about my community. Yeah. And, um, and it is true, like La Cultura Cura, you know, you guys, y'all showed me the culture that I, you know, I, I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And um, it really helped me. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, you know, um, yeah. big, big shout out to, uh, you know, Jackie Luna and, and Flaco, you know, Gregorio. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and uh, David Gutierrez, you know, uh, down, he's still he, he's in Yakima. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um, big shout out to all of them, uh, but definitely. Um, well, thank you so much for for having this discussion. Is there anything else you'd like to? Yeah, you know, no, nothing. I don't think there's 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 anything yeah. else. You know, I, I I do hope that a lot of the people um, who you know have had similar experiences are are finding ways to document it. I really appreciate what you're doing with this because um, you know maybe over the last ten years I spent a lot of time like documenting my family history. Um, and, and not just the, the genealogy stuff, but um, documenting stories, because I mentioned like my mom's side, they're all from South Texas and they grew up, you know, basically on dirt floors and they have an incredible story. 
And so I started to study and how to um, interview. And so I was reading books, trying to figure out the right questions. And I had to figure out how to work uh, video equipment because I wanted to make a, a oral history documentary, um, yeah. which I ended up completing a, a few years ago. But um, it was it was incredible to as an interviewer. It almost gave me, you know, once they agreed to be a part of it, they gave me this permission to ask questions that I've always wanted to ask, but I always felt like, oh, that, you know, that's, I'm out of place for asking you know, particular things. But when you get, you know, behind a camera or a mic and you're given, given that permission, you're able to ask the things that you've always wanted to ask and then document it and then share it to other people. And I think that, I think what you're doing is important. I, I hope other people really take the time to capture and document um, because there's incredible stories um, that are out there that I, I think need to be told and, and heard. No, thank you. And yeah, I appreciate it. And this has been uh, definitely something in my mind since college, you know, um, Dr. Maldonado, yeah. Dr. Dr. Garcia, we're really mm-hmm. into oral research and, you know, um, that's helped me with this, um, you know, having those discussions and having a, a dialogue but also providing space for healing because, you know, I've had folks, you know, reach out to me and say, you know, after hearing, you know, that last episode or that, you know, the episode, this episode, you know, whichever episode, they feel like they've reminisced, but also healed through hearing these mm-hmm. stories because they went mm-hmm. through it as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, they're like, it, it was rough hearing it because it, it affected me that night, but it, it really felt great the next morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, mm-hmm. like, wow, this is—it's like a release of oxytocin in the yeah. brain, uh, you know. And there's there's that love hormone and trust that goes yeah. with this because, you know, it's it's really an organic intellectual conversation that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not a traditional one. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah. yeah, I really thank you for uh, for taking time and conversating with me, and and I look forward to hearing this out out in the the sphere yeah for sure brother i appreciate it well thank you so much and you have a wonderful uh rest of the weekend and um i'll uh, i'll let you know how this goes all right sounds good all right also appreciate it enjoy we'll see you bye